There is a phrase in Spanish used to describe someone who is overly timid, delicate, or cautious. The phrase is licenciada vidriera, and it roughly translates to the glass graduate or maybe the glass lawyer or doctor. It comes from a short story of the same name by Miguel de Cervantes, published in 1613, about a young man named Tomás Rodaja who was given a quince filled with a love potion. The potion, it turns out, is poisonous, and Tomás falls ill, but his sickness is the strangest malady anyone around him has ever seen, and a perfect example of today's topic. Rodaja ate the quince, but had scarcely done so when he began to tremble from head to foot as if struck by apoplexy, remaining hours before he could brought to himself. At the end of that time, he partially recovered, but appears to have become almost an idiot. Six months did remain confined to his bed, and during that time he not only became reduced to a skeleton, but seemed also to have lost the use of his faculties. Every remedy that could have been thought of was tried on his behalf, but although the physicians succeeded in curing the physical malady, they could not remove that of the mind. So that when he was last pronounced cured, he was still afflicted with the strangest madness that was ever heard of among the many kinds by which humanity has been assailed. The unhappy man imagined that he was entirely made of glass, and, possessed with this idea, when anyone approached him, he would utter the most terrible cries, begging and beseeching them not to come near him, or they would assuredly break him to pieces. As he was not like other men, but entirely of glass from head to foot. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. Cervantes' story seems fanciful today. The idea of a person who believes they have turned to glass sounds like a fairy tale or the beginning of an allegory. In the 17th century, when this story was written, however, glass delusion was a real diagnosis, and there are many records of people who suffered from it. In fact, throughout history, there are many illnesses, both mental and physical, which have spread widely only to disappear into obscurity years later. Today, we will explore six such mental illnesses, disorders that were once considered to be real potential threats to people's sanity, but have now vanished from modern psychology because they are problematic or discriminatory, laughable or preposterous, or simply no longer relevant. We'll get back to glass delusion in a little while, but let's begin with a bizarrely specific condition known 
as railway spine. Train accidents were quite frequent in the early 19th century. Collisions between trains or trains going off the rails happened fairly often, and the train cars involved were flimsy and made of wood. They shook and rattled on the tracks, and they didn't protect passengers from anything more than the weather. By the mid-19th century, many people were coming forward claiming that they had been seriously hurt in railway collisions, but they showed no signs of injury. The railway companies rejected their claims and called them fakers, but the number of complaints continued to climb. The symptoms were varied and included some physical and many psychological problems. Headaches, confusion, memory loss, trouble with the sense of smell, ear and eye irritation, muscular rigidity and back pain, numbness, tingling, limping, and even paralysis of the sphincter muscles. Eventually, doctors became interested in what was going on. The nature of and cause of all these symptoms was hotly debated, and at the meeting of the 1886 Austrian Imperial Society of Physicians in Vienna, Germany's top neurologist, Hermann Oppenheim, claimed that all railway spine complaints were due to physical damage to the spine or the brain. Many scholars strongly disagreed with him, including Francis Jean-Martin Charcot and the British researcher Herbert Page, who insisted that many of the symptoms could be caused by hysteria. Finally, the first full-length medical study of the condition was conducted by John Eric Erickson in the late 1860s. He published his findings in 1867 under the title on railway and other injuries of the nervous system. For this reason, railway spine is often known as Erickson's disease. Erickson pointed out that railway travel was faster than anything humans had used to get from point A to point B in the past. He wrote that, according to his research, the people most likely to be injured in a train crash were the ones who were sitting with their backs to the acceleration when the accident happened, and were therefore thrown forcefully back and forth. Today, with the high rate of car accidents, most of us would recognize this motion as the cause of whiplash, and it is very likely that the physical symptoms of railway spine were simply that. What we also now know is that accidents of all kinds cause post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, which is probably the explanation for the rest of these symptoms. So, in short... Railway spine was just a 19th century diagnosis for the PTSD of passengers involved in railroad accidents. On Monday, April 6, 1936, Time magazine published an article that began with the following sentence, quote, Chlorosis. An affliction of young women through the ages has recently disappeared from the records of medicine. Last week, Professor Willis Marion Fowler, 35, of the University of Iowa, published its obituary in the Annals of Medical History. For nearly four centuries, chlorosis, our second obsolete disorder, which was also known as green sickness or the virgin's disease, 
was considered a normal medical malady. It appears in art and literature starting in the 16th century and was written up in many clinical texts. I'd be willing to bet, however, that very few people listening to this podcast have ever heard of it. This is because, as Time magazine said, it disappeared in the early 20th century. During the course of its life as a common illness, chlorosis was described and explained in many ways. Victims of chlorosis were nearly all teenage girls. They all appeared well-nourished, but they had a cluster of odd symptoms, including irregular menstruation or amenorrhea, extreme lethargy, a bluish cast to the whites of their eyes, and greenish skin. According to some accounts, they had fickle appetites and preferred sour things like pickles. The history of chlorosis can be divided into four phases. Prior to 1750, it was called the disease of virgins and was thought to be caused by unrequited love. For the next hundred years, from 1750 to 1850, it was believed to be some kind of uterine disorder that caused problems with menstruation, including amenorrhea. After 1850, it was considered a type of anemia that only young women experienced. Finally, between the years 1900 to 1936, it began to vanish from the medical canon until it was declared obsolete. A popular treatment for chlorosis, aka virgin's disease, was simply to end virginity. As Dr. Johannes Lange wrote to a worried father in 1554, quote, if they conceive, they recover. So, what was chlorosis, and why does it belong in a psychology podcast? Well, first of all, for a long time it was believed to be the echo of trauma, shock, or sudden fright, or, as I've said, sadness caused by unrequited love. Over the last century, however, it has often been suggested that it was actually related to a functional disorder that we would all recognize today, anorexia nervosa. This would account for nearly all of the symptoms, including the age of onset, irregular periods, anemia, and exhaustion. If this is the case, then the decline in chlorosis is most likely the result of the rise of the diagnosis of anorexia, which was the first eating disorder to be named and listed in the DSM, and was in fact included in the DSM-1 in 1952. But not everyone is satisfied with that solution. As recently as 1969, British doctor Leslie John Witts wrote that one is left with the uneasy feeling that the mystery of chlorosis remains unsolved. Our third obsolete disorder runs in the same family as chlorosis, and was actually bundled together with chlorosis and hysteria in the Victorian era. It's called neurasthenia, and it first appeared on the medical horizon in 1829 as a way to define a mechanical weakness of the nerves. By 1869, it had worked its way into the world of psychology. 
It was first used this way by E. H. Van Dusen, an alienist in the Kalamazoo Asylum, and then George Beard, a New York neurologist. What these men were describing went beyond the physical. They were seeing patients suffering from fatigue, anxiety, headaches, nerve pain, heart palpitations, high blood pressure, and depression. Van Dusen wrote that his neurasthenic patients were mostly bored farm wives with cabin fever, who were sick because of isolation and the feeling that they had nothing to do. Beard said that he associated the illness with society women and businessmen who were overworked and too busy. He thought that it was caused by the fast-paced modern life and urban stressors and increasingly competitive work environments. For all of these reasons, it was said that Americans were particularly prone to neurasthenia, and William James went so far as to dub it Americanitis. Freud, of course, had his own take. He listed the symptoms of neurasthenia as including fatigue, dyspepsia with flatulence, intracranial pressure, and irritation of the spine. Predictably, he linked it to sex and said that the root cause was non-completed intercourse, or coitus interruptus. He believed that what he called insufficient libidinal discharge could poison the body, and neurasthenia was the result of this poisoning. After 1869, neurasthenia became a popular diagnosis, and the cure was basically rest. Many famous people are believed to have been treated for the disorder, including Marcel Proust, Virginia Woolf, who described the experience of being forced to have rest cures in her book On Being Ill, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman, whose short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, is a beautiful and truly terrifying first-person narrative about a woman whose doctor husband makes her stay isolated day after day in a room with yellow wallpaper until she begins to see something in the walls. John is a physician, and perhaps, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind. Perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick, and what can one do? If a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? So I take phosphates or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics and journeys and air and exercise and am absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? It is so hard to talk with John about my case. Because he is so wise. And because he loves me so. But I tried it last night. It was moonlight. The moon shines in all around just as the sun does. I hate to see it sometimes. It creeps so slowly and always comes in by one window or another. John was asleep and I hated to waken him. So I kept still and watched the moonlight on that undulating wallpaper till I felt creepy.
creepy. The faint figure behind seemed to shake the pattern, just as if she wanted to get out. The full story, which is linked on our website, is a deeply haunting exploration of what this rest cure could look like. The other treatment for neurasthenia was electrotherapy, not to be confused with electroshock therapy, in which electric devices are used as deep brain stimulators. George Beard initially proposed this method, but the scientific community thought it was suspect, and Freud went so far as to call it a pretense treatment. By the 20th century, the term neurasthenia had pretty much lost its association with a physical illness and was used purely to describe behavioral and mental symptoms. Today, it has been completely eliminated from the DSM, although it is still listed as a neurotic disorder by the World Health Organization. Modern thinkers see it as a product of a certain time and believe that it disappeared largely due to cultural progress. In her book, Smile or Die, How Positive Thinking Fooled America and the World, Barbara Ehrenreich wrote that neurasthenia was caused by Calvinist gloom and eclipsed by the new thought as the puritanical demand for perpetual effort and self-examination to the point of self-loathing was replaced with a more hopeful faith. Unsurprisingly, there are some obsolete mental illnesses with deeply troubling and overtly racist definitions. Several were proposed and described by the same American doctor, Samuel A. Cartwright, whose wildly bizarre theories were second only to the outrageous treatments he recommended to cure them. Dysesthesia Ethiopica was one such alleged mental illness. According to Cartwright's 1851 text, Diseases and Peculiarities of the Negro Race, this affliction caused laziness in enslaved people. He listed the symptoms as partial insensitivity of the skin, extreme lethargy, and lesions on the skin. Infuriatingly, one of the treatments he suggested was lashing with a leather whip, meaning that those lesions were probably the result of his barbaric cure. He said that because insensitivity of the skin was one symptom of the disease, the skin should be stimulated through washing with warm soap and water, the application of oil, and slaps with a broad leather belt. The sick person should then be put to hard work in the sunshine. Cartwright claimed that he was able to prove the existence of dysesthesia ethiopica because it had been, quote, clearly established by the most direct and positive testimony, and other doctors hadn't noticed it because, quote, attention had not been sufficiently directed to the maladies of the Negro race. He wrote that the illness was most prevalent among freed slaves, stating that, quote, nearly all of them are more or less afflicted with it that have not got some white person to direct and take care of them. And he outright dismissed the possibility that what he saw as laziness was in fact the result of the horrendous treatment of enslaved people and the unfathomable cruelty of the institution of slavery. 
In fact, he went so far as to say that northern physicians, quote, ignorantly attribute the symptoms to the debasing influence of slavery on the mind. Another of Cartwright's outlandish and racist mental illnesses was drapetomania, which he claimed was the cause of enslaved people attempting to flee captivity. Yes, Cartwright actually wrote that trying to escape slavery was a mental illness. He based his theory on a passage of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, that calls for slaves to be obedient no matter what. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. In his book, Cartwright essentially wrote that it was the duty of white men to enslave black people, but that it must be done kindly and without condescension or deprivation so that the enslaved person would be cured of wanting to run away. He said that drapetomania was caused by either unkindness or over-familiarity on the part of plantation owners, so they must be careful not to treat slaves as equals. He described the disorder, which he said was unknown to our medical authorities, in a paper that he presented to the Medical Association of Louisiana. Once again, his cure was whipping, or, even more horrifically, to cut off the big toes of people who tried to run away so that they were literally incapable of escape. When Cartwright's views spread to the northern United States, he was called out and mocked publicly. A satire based on his Louisiana speech was published in Buffalo, New York, and in 1856, Frederick Law Olmsted, who was a famous landscape architect and social critic, wrote a book entitled A Journey to the Seaboard Slave States, where he commented that white indentured servants were often known to escape, so maybe this supposed disease was actually of European origin. Although both of these illnesses have long since been discarded as preposterous, Cartwright's outrageous thinking is just one example of the way that scientific racism has permeated the healthcare industry for centuries. The ongoing underdiagnosis and misdiagnosis of people of color is widely documented and persists in both mental health and medical settings today. Our sixth and final obsolete disorder is the one Cervantes wrote about, and it's probably my favorite, and the most mysterious, of these vanished illnesses. Glass delusion. In the late Middle Ages, around the year 1400, people began to report that their bodies were made of glass. They didn't feel that they were made of glass. They were truly convinced that they actually were literally made of glass. They told their doctors that their bodies were fragile and therefore likely to shatter into pieces. Some of them believed that only parts of themselves had been transformed, like the man described in this 1561 medical account who, quote, had to relieve himself standing up fearing that if he sat, his buttocks would shatter. 
The man concerned was a glassmaker from the Parisian suburb of Saint-Germain who consistently applied a small cushion to his buttocks, even when standing, and he was cured of this obsession by a severe thrashing from the doctor who told him that his pain emanated from buttocks of flesh. End quote. People with glass delusion looked totally healthy, physically, but they lived in absolute terror of shattering, and in some cases even believed that other people could see through them. Glass delusion was also called scholar's melancholy because it only seemed to affect wealthy, educated Europeans. And interestingly, this is the same demographic who had access to glass and was able to use glass in their homes. The same group that had the resources to buy glass and reading glasses, which were new products in the 15th century. The most famous sufferer was Charles VI, who was the King of France for 42 years, from 1380 to 1422. His mental health struggles were widely known and went beyond his glass delusions, so his nickname was Charles the Mad. He became king at the age of 11, and the story goes that in August of 1392, when he was 24, he was riding through the forest of Le Mans on his way to Brittany with his army when he suddenly went crazy. He killed four of his own knights and he almost killed his own brother, Louis I, who was the Duke of Orléans. After this apparent psychotic break, his bouts of insanity became more common and longer. He would deny that he had a wife and children. He would attack servants, scream for hours. He would run until he collapsed. He thought that he was in danger and that his enemies were coming to get him. And he believed he was made of glass, so he wore special clothing to protect himself. The poor man would not allow anyone to touch him because he truly thought that he would break. Although these episodes of psychosis would come and go, his instability eventually led to his relatives effectively taking political control of the country, which began a period of great chaos for France. Unfortunately, there was no clear cure for glass delusion. Doctors generally took the view that the best way to handle it was simply to prove to the suffering person that they were not made of glass by beating them and destroying their protective clothing. Whether or not this was effective is debatable, but we do know that by the 19th century, the diagnosis had all but disappeared. So what caused this mysterious condition in the first place, and what happened to it? Modern experts tend to think that the invention of clear glass was so startling, and the material itself was so unlike anything that had come before it, that it inspired both awe and terror in the people who saw and used it. It was practically a magical material with unbelievable new properties, invisible and yet present, there but not there, a separation but also a portal. Basically, this alarming new stuff freaked people out, and it became a fixation for those who were probably already predisposed to delusions of one type or another. Psychotherapist Adam Phillips writes that delusions tend to be linked with the environment in which they manifest, and that glass delusion is a strong fit for a society that is concerned about transparency or fragility. Interestingly, the end of glass delusion almost exactly coincides with a new disorder, cement delusion, which appeared just as huge buildings made of cement began to crowd the sky. 
Following this logic, we should be on the lookout for delusions centered around technology today, and indeed, there are many modern phobias that prove this theory true. Nowadays, glass and cement are common and comfortable, but many people are scared that they are being watched or believe that they are controlled by a microchip inside their head or worry that they need a tinfoil hat to keep intruders from hearing their thoughts. UFO sightings went up with the advent of flight, and conspiracy theories about lizard people controlling the world emerged around the time that the world seemed most out of control. In short, just as our definitions of mental illness evolve, so too do the illnesses themselves, morphing from one generation to another, a constant reflection of our own fears and wishes. They are scary one day, and funny or ridiculous the next. But they are a constant mirror of our own society. So ask yourself, when you think about mental health, when we categorize and label, what are we saying about ourselves? Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. Our guest stars this week were Dr. Javi Molina and Zoe Morris. If you like what we do, please take a moment to write us a review. It really helps us out. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Pod, and visit our website for links to source materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. Mm-hmm.